Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Gina. And we're the hosts of Job Search Stories by Indeed, a podcast where we talk about the hardest parts of the job search. This is another hot topic, the job application abyss. A horrible place to be. Doing a resume. I like to put off forever. Do start working on it now. I love that you said the trickiest questions are the ones you don't prepare for. An interview really is a high pressure situation. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or come watch it on Indeed's YouTube channel. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. You said that in a completely different voice to normal. You oh, sounded like a Radio 2 <laughs> presenter then. I like that. I haven't had any additional media training. It's, uh, it must be Hello the quality of the welcome. coffee in the Spotify building. Who knows? Yes. Right. Should we talk about what is in this episode? So the IMF have come out with uh, a pretty strong criticism of uh, of the UK government, haven't they, in terms of Well, it's tax a warning. It's yeah. a warning. I mean, we know that the uh, government, Jeremy Hunt, he's actually said it on our, on our podcast. He said he wants to cut taxes. And the IMF have said it's a bad idea to cut taxes yep. at this moment. So we're going to explore what that means. Yes. We're also going to be talking about whether the working from home revolution is over. EY uh, is one of the big four uh, consulting firms and now saying they're going to monitor work attendance. So they're going to be checking up on whether their staff are in the office enough, basically. So we're going to talk about that, how it affects productivity and whether this is about trust and what's going on there. And deep fakes. You've had a whole drama with a, a deep fake of you, haven't you? Well, for months, actually, there's been this phony story being propagated by some a financial firm of some sort and it's uh, a lie it's a lying mm. story about me and it's an attempt to uh, persuade people to hand over money it's incredibly upsetting mm. to be to have you know my name abused in this sense and but it relates to a, a, a really big problem at the moment which is the images of well-known people even the words and voices of well-known people being manipulated by malign actors to persuade people to hand over money. And um, it's not obvious, frankly, that, for example, the social media companies, I'm going to talk a bit about what's happened in my case, are doing enough to stop it. Yes, so we will talk about that as well. But let's start with the the big news of the week then. So this is the IMF giving a warning. Do you want to just tell us a bit about that, flesh it out for us? Yeah, so IMF, you know, regarded as the most influential economic body. And in a minute or two, you'll you'll 
tell our listeners a bit, little bit more about its history, but they came out with a statement. Uh, an INF spokesperson said that the staff of the IMF advise against further tax cuts in the UK. Now, um, this is hugely embarrassing for the government because we've got a budget coming in March and there's been briefing after briefing from senior Tories, indeed, you know, on the record statements from the likes of Jeremy Hunt. He was on our podcast talking about how he wants to drive taxes down, make the UK more competitive. Rishi Sunak constantly talks about the need to get the tax burden down. They wanted to offer what many would see as tax bribes in the coming budget mm. to persuade voters that this is a government that's making many of them better off. It's, uh, as I say, it's, it's, it's seen as many as a bribe for the forthcoming general election. And the IMF has said, actually, this is a bad time to cut taxes. And the fundamental reason why it says it's a bad time to cut taxes is, one, that like a number of economists and commentators, it, it, it's pointed out that our public services are creaking. Just the previous week, we saw the, you know, they're regarded as the most influential body when it comes to the public finances, the Institute for Fiscal Studies. They pointed out that the current projections or the current budgets for public services, a 1% increase after this year for the subsequent few years, um, it's just unsustainable when you've got a health service that can't cope, mm. when you've got all sorts of public services just falling apart at the seams. Everybody basically knows there's going to be way more money needed for those public services. But if you put more money into public services, you haven't got room for tax cuts. And that's basically what the um, you know the IMF is saying. And uh, we're, we're also pointing out, because and it, again, it's trying to put pressure on the government. It says, you know, they need to spend more money on climate change, mm. you know, essentially, essentially making the economy greener and that should be an imperative. Jeremy Hunt, it sounds like he's also rowing her back a bit on his tax cutting measures though because he's been saying that today, hasn't he? So there's a couple of things that have been going on in that sense. The background is that there was an enormous flurry ex of excitement two or three weeks ago uh, over the idea that there would be masses of more headroom is the expression which the British people have had to had to learn. Money in, in, in the in, pot. Well, I tell you what it is. It's it's a really surreal concept that if you are outside of the treasury or the kind of world that I spend rather too much time in, you just think is mad, right? Because under the the, the so called fiscal rules, right, the central ambition of the government, and actually on this one, the Labour Party has exactly the same fiscal rule: debt in five years' time, in five years' time, is supposed to fall as a share of GDP, as a share of national income, right? And that is the rule that they have to hit. It's not reducing debt tomorrow or in a year's time. It's not actually even in reducing debt as an absolute number. Um, it's debt as a share... <laughs> of national income. And it's been heading up inexorably to 100% of national income. And in five years' time, if they're going to hit their rules, it has to fall. Now, normally, a, a prudent chancellor gives themselves some wriggle room in case bad stuff happens. So the headroom is how much cushion is there if things go wrong for debt still to be falling, right? And normally, 
that headroom is tens and tens of billions of pounds. So let's just say they had to increase spending in an emergency. They've got several yeah. tens of billions of pounds that they could spend and still hit their fiscal More target, money in the pot, right? yeah. Um, actually, at the moment, that fiscal headroom is a is basically a few billions it's 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 slimmer than it's ever been that headroom um the chancellor had hoped with lower interest rates would uh, get quite a lot bigger and then he could give away all this money and income tax cuts and national insurance tax and all of that um but um guess what he suddenly discovered because of low growth and low productivity that actually even mm. with interest rate cuts that headroom ain't going to be there so he's now got this awful political challenge which is on the one hand he's facing all this pressure from Tory MPs to cut taxes i mean i think the new conservatives have said today they want him to cut taxes by something like 25 billion pounds particularly income tax they want to mm. be cut and the treasury is now saying oh we're not sure we got the headroom we need and maybe you know maybe we can't ta cut taxes as much as that and then there's a separate issue very quickly on our program the chancellor said he's particularly interested in cutting business taxes but you know all his Can mps want him to it? cut income tax because yeah. that's the thing that they think will help them keep their seats in a general election and then at the same time with all of this going on you've got the imf coming out to basically suggest that his plans are not going to be the best if he carries on with these tax cuts he's saying basically the more sensible thing to do is to invest in public yeah. services in the way and that we need. And can, I, can I just make one other point? Because I think it's also important to recognise that Labour also has a problem in these circumstances because Labour has basically signalled that if the Chancellor were to cut income taxes, it wouldn't reverse that, right? But the IMF is just saying it's mad to cut income mm. taxes. So, you know, this is a problem for Labour too. And there's one final tiny little point. We had the Chancellor on the programme talking about the importance of increasing competitiveness for business yeah. and growing the economy and, and all of that. One of the really striking things um, that the IFS said just a few days ago was that even if Labour spent that 28 billion, which they are softening. And actually, you know, I said earlier this the week- money I think for the environment. This is the money yeah. for the environment, green investment. And I actually said earlier this week that I don't, I think they're going to basically drop the 28 billion number altogether. But the IFS is saying, even if they spent the 28 billion, in, because of the impact of inflation, investment will be falling over the next four or five years. So, you know, <sighs> yeah. so basically- you know, the, 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 the ravages of both austerity from 2010 and then inflation more recently, it's done so much harm to you know, public services and public service investment. And that's why the IMF is basically saying this is not the moment for tax cuts. Yeah, so we shouldn't expect tax cuts, whoever comes into power. But the reason why the, you know, we've got acronyms being thrown around here, the IFS, the IMF and all these different institutions, but it matters what they say, doesn't it? So for those of you who don't know, the IMF being the International Monetary Fund. So this uh, is a global organisation founded in uh, the 1940s after the Great Depression of the 1930s. It's got about 190 member countries and their job is basically to work with these countries to stabilise the global economy. So they, they keep an eye on all of our economics, all of our decisions that we're making uh, as governments and they're also a lender of last resort. So where countries go when they can't borrow money from anywhere else and pay off their debts. And you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, where do they get the money from uh, for all of that? Well, they basically collect money from the countries who are members, but not all members pay the same amount. It, they basically work it out based on how big economically you are. So the bigger you are, the more money you put in and then the more voting rights you have and all that kind of jazz. Um, and they have about a trillion 
dollars that they can hand out to member countries. Uh, we had a bailout from them, didn't we, in the 1970s? It was the biggest bailout of the time, something like £3.6 billion that we had to be given as a country. Yeah, 76. This is Dennis Healy going cap in hand for emergency funding uh, from the IMF. Probably the most humiliating moment in uh, the history of the British Treasury. Yeah. Um, I have to say, you know, during the trust debacle, the few weeks, the quasi quarting mini budget, you know, when uh, government bombs were plummeting in price, you know, it wasn't completely inconceivable if they hadn't changed tack that actually, you know, international investors would have turned their back on us again. And we would have been back at the IMF asking for a bailout. That was a mega crisis. And, they, and the IMF criticised us then when that came out, didn't they? When the Liz, Liz Truss and Quasi Quarteng. Yeah, I think they got it right when they I mean, when they criticised uh, the economic policy of Truss and Quarteng. But they don't always get it right. I mean, it's really quite striking that, that after the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, they were encouraging countries like the UK uh, to cut public spending. They were encouraging what we came to think of as austerity. austerity yeah. And actually, subsequently, a few years later, they put their hands up and they said they'd made a mistake, that that they had underestimated the extent to which when you cut public spending, it really depresses economic activity and it makes everybody poorer. So they do accept yeah. that they don't always get it right. That was then when there was the whole Greek debt crisis and then there were loads of protests in Greece, weren't they? Because they had to be bailed out. And they then definitely IMF forced too to, much austerity yeah, on, they, on they Greece. They put too much yeah. austerity on, on on Greece and but everyone you, but was are, kicking but off arguably about it. they provided too much of a backdrop um, to allow, you know, many would say that the cuts that Cameron and Osborne made were too great mm. and that if it hadn't been for the IMF putting this sort of cloak of respectability around that, perhaps, you know, those cuts wouldn't have been as deep. So does it matter what they say? Because that's the fundamental thing. Because it can it can impact what investors think about a country if the IMF come out and no, say... It massively matters. Yeah, it can I mean, affect how much it costs for them to borrow money, you know, how much they're selling their government bonds off for. It, all of this is something that can directly financially impact and make things worse for us. Look, one of the reasons why the Treasury will be thinking we've got to be quite careful about the size... I'm sure there will be tax cuts in the budget, by the way. Uh, and, you know, my own view is there will be a bit of... Is normally on these occasions, there's a row between Downing Street and the Treasury about whether, you know, you do an election giveaway by handing over a load of money to voters or whether you make the kind of um, economic reforms that might help business more but probably doesn't, you know, win many votes. In, in, in the end, Downing Street will win. There will be income tax cuts. Um, I mean, what the Treasury is trying to do is to limit the magnitude so that, um, you know, th they don't face the charge that they're being reckless. Because uh, if they're reckless, uh, then, uh, you know, what will happen is government bond prices will fall, interest rates will rise and we'll be into a vicious cycle of um, decline again, which they've got to avoid at all costs. Some of it may sound rather sort of technocratic and dry, but... Um, <laughs> The IMF has had something of a colourful history. Yes, yeah, certainly has. There's always big personalities as well who are in charge of the IMF and you see them, you know, talking a lot and whatever they say gets a lot of news headlines. You know, Christine Lagarde did it for quite a while. She's, of course, now president of the European Central Bank. And currently we've got this Kristalina Georgieva, haven't we? Uh, who's been rather impressive in my view. Um, but, you know, the most notorious one of recent times was Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Oh, yeah, he got in a bit um, of trouble. I, I, I met him for the first time, actually, with Gordon Brown in 1996 and um, had an extraordinary experience of being in this private room of an incredibly swish French restaurant with him and his unbelievably glamorous TV presenter, 
wife. And then, you know, uh, he then becomes head of the IMF. There was a terrible scandal involved in him, wasn't there? He ended up, what was it, in kind of 2011, he was arrested and charged with a sexual assault and attempted rape of a housekeeper who was working in a hotel in New York. And then there was this whole campaign against him, wasn't there? People of New York. Well, he left. He uh, obviously resigned at the IMF because of the politics of these things. Um, these appointments at bodies like the IMF are amazingly political. So to, so to save face for the French nation, Christine Lagarde, you just talked about her, is appointed as his successor. And actually, one of the things that's quite interesting about these institutions that you gave the history of it, because IMF is the sister organisation, that is the World Bank. They were both set up at the same time to bring um, economic stability to the world. This is back in the 40s. And there has been this sort of tradition that the IMF is run by a European and the World Bank always run by an American. And it sort of shows you historically, of course, the world is changing, where power for most of the post-war period has resided. The thing that is really interesting with the rise of India, with the rise in particular of China, there are now rival institutions being set up. For example, China has set up its own sort of Asian international organisation to challenge the power of the IMF and the World Bank. So these things are never forever, but they remain important. Yeah, and who is at the helm matters. Right, should we have a, a quick break then? I think that's an ideal time for a break. Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Gina. And we're the hosts of Job Search Stories by Indeed, a podcast where we talk about the hardest parts of the job search. This is another hot topic, the job application abyss. A horrible place to be. Doing a resume, I like to put off forever. Do start working on it now. I love that you said the trickiest questions are the ones you don't prepare for. An interview really is a high pressure situation. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or come watch it on Indeed's YouTube channel. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations like rainbows and ropes or fruity and gummy or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Pester. Now, um, we're not being productive enough, are we? No, apparently not. Do you think we're more productive when we do this podcast remotely, not in the office per se, or when we do it here together? Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, well, because there's quite a lot of companies looking into this at the minute. The latest is EY, who've come out. Well, it has come out, I don't think they announced it, but someone has told the press that they're now monitoring how often staff come into the office because half of their employees weren't coming in enough because they're meant to do two days a week. And they think, along with quite a few other companies now, that this 
does have an impact on how hard their staff work. Their so they're saying people work harder and better if they're in the office. Yeah, which is a bit of a shift in how we've all been thinking, isn't it? Because since COVID, yeah. since COVID there was a view that you know, we could work flexibly in terms of location, not just hours. And very efficiently. I yeah. mean, McKinsey did this big study around the time of COVID from memory in which they said actually there was no reduction in productivity in output per person as a result of working from home. And yet now you see all over the place huge institutions, particularly in the financial services sector, banks particularly obsessed with trying to get their employees yeah. um, you know, back in the office at least for two or three days. We're not talking about full-time. We're not talking about, you know, employers saying you've got to be there five days a week, but they do want two or three days. Yeah, it's this hybrid working, isn't it, which uh, the companies are all talking about. But the other day I was hosting the British Council of Offices Awards. So this is the organisation. It's like a trade body for all the companies involved with building offices, running offices, that type of thing. And I was chatting to the president about this very thing. It's an amazing woman called Despina. She also works for Cushman and Wakefield, which is obviously a big real estate firm. And she was saying they've just done a load of research on office attendance and productivity. So they surveyed over 180,000 people who work in offices and they found that back just as we were coming out of COVID to so 2020, 90% of employees said that they felt trusted by their employers to work remotely. But now it's 72%. So there's like a trust shift that's happened. And similarly, they were looking at productivity and productivity has fallen in that time as well. So what is going on there? Is it a case of employers now don't trust their staff to work as well at home? Have we all got too used to it? Because, you know, you'll have heard the anecdotes of people who are doing their Teams meetings while they're in the gym and they just, you know, turn the turn the camera off and, uh, you know, are you I being productive not, I, think it's not, I think it's not just that. I'm somebody who definitely believes you can work very productively from home, but I think you do go slightly mad if you're isolated for too long and you don't get the inspiration uh, that you get when you're physically with people. You know, the thing that gets me sort of fizzing with ideas normally is to be with a a group of people who are just sort of throwing, you know, facts at me or I've um, got an opportunity to sort of, um, you know, ask them questions. And physical proximity, I find, is much more propitious when it comes to creativity than doing something on Zoom. So I, I do get the idea that at least some of the time we should be in an office or just be in a room with yeah, people. Yeah, and that is the argument from employers because there was a really interesting employment tribunal on this recently and it was a, uh, a woman who works for the FCA, obviously big financial uh, regulator, and she uh, was working from home and her boss wanted her to come in and start working from the office. Her argument was she was doing really well, she was hitting all of her targets and therefore she didn't need to come into the office. She actually lost that case because the employer's argument was that actually she would do even better if she was in the office because she'd be able to, um, you know, work more with the junior colleagues. They'd be able to physically be there. She'd be more approachable. And, you know, like you say, there'd be more room for the ideas flying around. And lots of people are saying this is probably going to be the test case now for employers to say we do need you back in the office. And I think the other thing that's going on at the minute is the jobs market is not great, is it? So there's been like a 
a shift in terms of the balance of power back to employers. So for a long time, you saw a lot of jobs being advertised, didn't you? Saying, you know, flexible, working from home is an option. It's hybrid working. And now you're not seeing as many anymore. It's more or people who've started in jobs like that are now being told, oh, yeah, I know. I know we said you could work from home all the time, but we want you in. And there isn't the same opportunity to move to other jobs and say, no, stuff you. I, I don't want to uh, work for you anymore. I want to go somewhere more flexible. It's not the environment for that. And what do you think about this Big Brother thing? Is it EY that are now basically checking that Passes. you are using your card to swipe in and into the office and, and, and actually just sort of observing with electronic surveillance yeah. where you are. Well, I mean, Meta announced this last August as well. They, uh, You have to be in three days a week there and that you have to swipe in with your badges and you have to always display your physical location at all times. Well, the thing is, right, it's a bit like benefit fraud, isn't it? There's always going to be some people who break the rules, but do you go really hard on everyone in order to combat the few people who are, you know, the ones who are being dodgy or corrupt or whatever else, or just not working hard enough in this sense? And that's the argument because, you know, there are the stories about people who collect up the passes for everyone who works in the office and swipe them all in. And then, you know, everyone takes on that responsibility on different days, <laughs> which is not right. But if they're hitting their targets and getting their work done, I guess what's the problem for for the sake of some people who might not be. But, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it, where it'll probably change again in a few years' time. Because the other thing about this research I was talking about is they also looked at well-being and they're saying that the well-being of employees in offices now has fallen to like only 39% of the people asked were saying that they had a sense of well-being. That's a lot of people who aren't happy working in offices. So, But is that related to... Well, that's being what in the, the suggestion is, is that it could, could it be related or could, could well-being be what's hurting productivity and all of this because people aren't as happy now they're being made to go back to the offices more. But, you know, it's one of those things you always say this about causation and correlate. Is it well, is well-being bad because there's other things going on in the world or is it because they're being made to go back to the office? The thing about working from home though is, I mean, obviously now I'm not doing my show every day anymore. So I'm not going into an office and I'm at home. I get distracted. Oh my God, the jobs you find around the house to do. You're very different to me, Robert, because you, you've got the whole ultra focus thing going on, but I'm not. I get so easily distracted. I can't, I don't know how I used to fit in a full-time job. So I really like the variability, the diversity of my life. I mean, you know, I work a bit from home I'm in the Spotify studios. Uh, tonight I'll be in the old BBC studios recording my ITV show. I'm going to go to Gray's Inn Road today, which is why, where ITN is. I've got an office in the house. All right, you're just showing I've off I've got now. an office in Millbank. I both love the, the mixture of places to go. But I, also, I do love being with people because, as I say, you spark off them, don't you? But do they love being with you? <laughs> That's a good place to end. That's a good place to end. Before we wrap up, though, I want to ask you about this deep fake stuff. I mean, obviously, I've seen Taylor Swift's been in the news again this week because she's been deep faked. Um, slightly different, I think, to yours. Not pornography with you, is it? Yeah, she's porn. Mine is selling financial services. Um, so a little <laughs> bit of a difference. Yeah, I mean, this is something that's been driving me nuts for months. Some financial firm, I think, you know, scammers right, created this phony news story, this was months ago, uh, about me 
talking to my ITV colleague, Paul Brand. Um, and allegedly, the news story, and it's got a sort of BBC logo on the top of it. It's a BBC news story, and it's got this logo saying that I'm revealing privately to Paul Brand. It's all picked up allegedly on studio microphones, and they've got hold of the tape, is what this stupid, lying story says. And it's me saying, this is how I've made this enormous amount of money uh, through an investment scheme. Your and voice? Then it, and, and, and is then it your voice? No, Vic, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's manipulated photos, in yeah. this case, not voice. And when I first saw it, I thought, this is the stupidest thing ever. Nobody's going to believe this. And I, so I did this stupid thing for a few days of just ignoring it. Um, and then I discovered that people were clicking on the links and handing over significant yeah, sums scary. of money uh, to what looks to me to be a total scam, right? And so, you know, I brought my ITV compliance people in on it. They did investigations. There have been complaints to social media, the social media platforms about it. it you know, it was on Facebook. It's been, it's now on Twitter. And, you know, we complain to Facebook. Uh, we complain to Twitter and nothing happens. It just yeah. keeps popping up. And actually there was this... Um, I mean, full fact, you know, who are, who are the organisation that's all about uh, assessing the veracity of content on social media, put out a, a proper bit of analysis uh, uh, and a press release saying this is manufactured fiction, a lie. Even then, right, Facebook and Twitter won't take it down. In yeah. fact, Facebook put out a statement saying it met their criteria for adverts, which I just thought was really, really Shocking. And I know of, because they've been in contact with, with me, vulnerable people who've handed money over as a result of this scam. And, you know, the, it is difficult, obviously, in a digital world for me as a private individual to basically get behind what's going on. But you would expect the social media companies to be able to get to the source of it and then make sure that this stuff is simply taken down permanently yeah. um, and they haven't done that and I think that's a grotesque failure of their I don't it's not it's not my ego here it's that people are being scammed yeah it's it's really common as well because I've had it happen with me on Instagram where people have set up accounts pretending uh, to be like my PA and then they'll message my followers saying oh you know I'm uh, Steph's PA she just wanted me to let you know about this investment scheme and again people have messaged me saying that oh thanks for the advice I've taken on that scheme and I contacted you know Instagram about this and again got the same as you the, the, they didn't have a problem with the account that had been set up because it fell into their guidelines as it were and, and so both, that's both really of ours scary. are in a sense more conventional fakes but it is getting more, you know these these essentially criminal enterprises are getting more and more sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, it is now so easy. I mean, you talked about the, you know, the Taylor Swift porn video that's been manufactured and, and, and thankfully now taken down. But there are, you know, lots of now videos of well-known people claiming to represent some product yeah. when it's, again, it's a total fabrication. I interviewed this woman um, and this was a really scary, deep fake um, scam that she fell for. So it was a scammer who basically managed to manipulate the voice of her daughter. So managed to create deep fake her daughter's voice 
and set up this, uh, you know, account. It had the details of the mum, had managed to find out from the mum's social media who her daughter was, and then managed to create this whole fake person, which was representing her daughter, and then contact her and said she was in trouble and managed to get money out of her. Um, but because they had this voice of her daughter and because they had like the pictures and things like that, she totally fell for it. Understandably, she felt really stupid afterwards, which she should not have felt because this was so sophisticated. If you got a call from one of your kids and you thought they were in trouble, you would do everything, wouldn't you, to to try and help them, especially if it was their voice as well. So, you know, and they, they managed to really gaslight her to think that, uh, you know, she couldn't, when she tried to ring the daughter, they then were just messaging going, I can't actually talk. This is, you know, this situation in, in, is, yeah, in, is so enough, bad. I had, I, a friend of mine told me an almost identical story only the, only the other yeah. day. I mean, the, the, the sophistication of these uh, crimes is really now quite disturbing. Yeah. There's a big cost element to all of this, though, as well, isn't there, in terms of the money people lose themselves of their own personal money. Their money is costing banks as well, both trying to stop it from happening or having to do payouts if, if some scammer has managed to circumvent their security. And there's been a lot of analysis on this. And they reckon it's going to, in terms of cost, cybercrime now is costing the global economy something like $8 trillion a year. I mean... That is bigger than the economic output of Japan, which is the world's third largest economy. So this is mega money. And according to the people who've done all this research, cybersecurity ventures, it's going to reach $10.5 trillion in terms of cost. I mean, that is mega money. It's unbelievable. So yeah, they'll want to stop this, but it sounds like the social media companies need to do a bit more to try and help on that front too. Although we we tried on my show to do like a, a deep fake of me and they can't as things stand AI cannot copy my accent I sounded Australian so my advice for everyone out there is get yourself a nice regional accent uh, preferably a northeastern one and then the scammers won't be able to fake you that's very good advice thank you so much <laughs> Right, we've run out of time for questions because we are just about to interview uh, Richard Walker, who's, of course, the boss of Iceland, took the company over from his dad. He has got a fascinating story of what it was like growing up with his dad running Iceland, how he got into business. And then, of course, he's been in the headlines this week for his switch in the political sense from the Tories to, to Labour. Yeah, so, uh, that's in the next episode. Tons to, tons to ask him. But do keep your questions coming because, you know, we do love answering them. Yes. And just to remind you, it's rest is money at gmail.com or you can message us on our social media pages uh, but that's it from us bye bye all the best 